You guys doing well? Man, I want to say thank you to Pastor Chad and Pastor BJ uh, for bringing God's word. I, I was refreshed. Yeah, yeah. And it's like one of the things that I love about Austin Oaks Church is that we celebrate the plurality of leaders and we want to give opportunities for them to share and pour out their hearts as well as how God is working inside of their lives. Um, I want to do two things before we get into the text this morning. First and foremost, we are going to be taking a trip to Rwanda in November, okay? So if you haven't been to Rwanda or if you've been to Rwanda and want to go again, you want to see what we've been partnering with and seeing the effects of all the churches that we're building and planting with Africa New Life, this is an opportunity for you to go. We are committing to planting a church in Rwanda every year for like the first five years and then we'll come back to like the lord and be like what's on your heart and we're trying to go every year to be part of the grand opening of that church and so november 9th is going to be the opening of the previous church that we just raised the funds for so november 9th through november 20th it's just in time to be back home for thanksgiving Hurrah. So I want to encourage you to go. And I know it's a bit of a short window of time to raise funds. There, there very well will be some scholarship um, money there for us as well. I want to encourage you to go. It's going to be anywhere in the vicinity of $4,000 to $4,500. And that's all inclusive. That extra $500 will determine if we do a safari or not a safari. It all depends on the appetite of the people who are going on a trip. So I want to encourage you to do that, okay? Because it will change your life it will soften your heart it'll give you a, a deep appreciation and affection for what god is doing there and how instrumental it is to partner with other churches across the world and so i want to encourage you to do that secondly uh, i want to have some time in prayer before we we get into god's word this morning and we're going to cover a few things that we want to pray for first and foremost it's it would be important for us to be mindful that the youth retreat is still happening Okay, so Becca, wherever you're at, she drove in super late last night because she and her team were leading worship. The other crew's there leading worship. So she came in and wanted to be part of this. And I love that we get to experience a different version, different style of worship, bluegrass. So that was really sweet. So Becca, thank you, team, thank you. But I want us to pray for these students that they have an encounter with Jesus, that their lives are forever changed. And that they become so influential in the days to come for the building of God's kingdom. I want to pray for that. I want to pray for us this morning in our hearts and also um, as the Lord leads in our hearts to pray for um, other folks as well. So would you just join me in prayer? Holy Father, we come in a posture of humility. We recognize and, and accept the fact that it's by your grace that we're ably, able to boldly approach the throne. Thank you that we have full access to you. Thank you that you've given us the Holy Spirit, the comforter. Thank you that through the Holy Spirit, there is power to be your witness. There's, there's power to be able to communicate your gospel that we're able to receive and to know this love that surpasses all understanding. So Lord, we wanna pray right now for the youth. God, we wanna ask that now, that today, and even as they wrap up tomorrow, that they would see you, that students would come to faith in you, 
that students who maybe have a relationship with you would come to know your voice, would come to love your word, would love to draw near to you, to build a relationship with you. And God, I ask, Lord, that you would take these lives of these students and use them for great good in this world. Lord, I pray for Kel. I pray that you give him just grace upon grace. I pray that you give him shepherding eyes, a discerning heart, a compassionate heart. I pray for the volunteers who are probably right now wishing they were in their own bed. God, I pray that you would just give them grace. Put your love in their hearts for these kids. And Lord, I pray that there is such a fire in these students when they come back, such an infectious love for you that other people, those other students who don't know you are drawn to you because of their passion for you. Lord, I pray for us as a church. God, I ask that you would show us your affections for us. Remind us of how much you love us. Remind us of who we are apart from you. To not grow tired of experiencing your grace. Lord, I pray that you would break any chains in our lives that we, where we're trapped in our own selfishness. Lord, I pray that you would teach us how to love the way you love. And that means there's a difficult confrontation with our own hearts to be able to do that. And Lord, it's been on my heart to pray for our dear brother Humphrey. And I know there's other people in the church with illnesses and battling, but Lord, you just prompted me to pray. I pray for the Marr family. Thank you that Humphrey's been a faithful elder. Thank you that he's been faithful to you in glorifying you through this process of dealing and battling cancer. Thank you that their marriage and their love has grown deeper. So Lord, now we pray for the full healing of Humphrey. Eradicate that, that tumor. Even when they say there's not much they can do, Lord, you can do anything. We claim that healing in the name of Jesus. Pray for Tanchita that you would continue to give her peace, comfort, love. Pray for her family, their family, their kids and grandkids, that you would protect and guard their hearts. May the enemy not drop lies where they would get bitter or resentful or angry at you, God. You never waste suffering. You don't cause it, but you don't waste it. So, Lord, I just pray that you would get glory in their lives, and I know that is their desire of their heart. And so, Lord, we pray and ask in Jesus' name for healing. In Christ's name, amen. I want to do this real quick. Why don't you greet your neighbor and tell them one thing in your life where you love someone well this week? Quiet room. I'm just kidding. All right, go.
All right. I, this, this is encouraging for me to hear because it's like, if y'all are talking about how you loved well, I'm like, God is working in our church. Amen. So I'm just going to keep talking, and you can keep talking too. We're totally cool with that. I'm a former college pastor, so I'm used to distractions. You can go right ahead and do your thing. So I'm not like BJ or Chad, and I have all sorts of pop culture references that connect my life to to, uh, to movies or shows, but I tried. I tried, I really did. I've only seen this movie once. I don't really care for the movie, but I remember a quote in the movie that turned into like great memes and gifs and everything else. Jerry Maguire, right? Like there's like two iconic lines in Jerry Maguire. Show me the money, right? You got that one, and then you have this love scene, and I have this picture of this meme that's there. And this scene comes where he, he comes walking into this room and his wife is in there with a bunch of her friends and, and he's just like, oh, well, it looks like it's gonna happen in here. And he starts talking about the event that his company had and it was supposed to be like this great event and great celebration. But then he goes on, he's saying it's like, like there was something that wasn't right. Right, like it was a very big night, but it wasn't complete. It wasn't nearly close as being in the same vicinity as complete because I couldn't share it with you. I couldn't hear your voice or laugh about it with you. I, I miss my wife. We live in a cynical world and we work in a business of tough competitors. And then you got that like melting Tom Cruise face. <laughs> I love you. You complete me. All right, like I, I totally butchered it. Right, like, like, how can you not be moved? But, okay. And then you know the next line is, you had me at hello, right? And I was just thinking about that. I was like, this movie was, was like, at that time, it was so influential and so actually in, in, informative of how culture talks about love and experiences love and teaches about love. Like it was so influential that even Austin Powers had to quote Jerry Maguire in it, if you know what I'm talking about, right? Like you complete me. Like it sounds great, right? Like if you really think about it, it sounds great. Like there's a level of truth to it because love does complete us at some level, but that's not the way that culture is actually using that line to tell the story of love. And so culture has taken that and started to leverage individualism and the, the, the self-gain and the self-focus and go, yes, you need to find someone in your life that completes you. Think about that. Like, doesn't that just seem a little like Odd, rather than like you need to find people in your life that you can love, right? That you can give and, and better. It's like, no, no, you need to find someone that completes you and your grid and your world and everything that you have about you. That's why I think there is a subtle teaching of selfishness in that line that we need to be careful of. And the reality is culture has jumped on that full on and you and I have been completely influenced by it and we don't even know it. Like, let, let, let's think about some of these things, 
right? Like when we grow up just in life, we grow through this process of self-discovery, which self-awareness and self-discovery is important at some level, right? Like it's good to know who you are so you know how to love people well. You're asking questions like, who am I? What do I need to do? And how do I feel about this or that? And how does this people or this group make me feel? Do they understand me? Do they accept me? Will they help me become the best version that I envision of me? These aren't necessarily bad questions. But what ends up happening is the next phases of self-realization. And we typically do that apart from God. So this is who I am. So now these are going to be the choices and the behaviors I'm going to go after. And people need to adjust and people need to accept me for who I am and everything that I am and what I do. And if they do not do so, they don't benefit me and they don't probably love me. I will then pursue things that I want to do and the things that make me feel good and lovable. Sound familiar? For broken, sinful people, which, newsflash, that's, that's everyone, the result of this type of love is, is conflicting and absolutely empty because we battle with then self-absorption. Like we constantly are thinking about ourselves and looking to ourselves, and yet at the same time, we want companionship, but because we're absorbed with ourselves, our companionship breaks down. Right? We, we want to be self-expressive, and out of that, we want people to approve of our moral choices without being told that it may be wrong or harmful or detrimental. Like, we want to be self-ruling. We don't want nobody to tell us what's right or wrong. And, and at the same time, we want others to bless all of our choices. We want to live a life of pleasure and at the same time have a guilt-free conscience. So we look for people or things that complete me. I don't know if that is where you're at. I don't know if that's like some of the things that you feel in culture, in life, and how hard it is to navigate with people, how hard sometimes it is to talk about Jesus. Because when you do that, they immediately start to go, oh, here's an authority, here's a boundary, you're going to tell me I'm wrong. You don't love me. And because you don't love me, then you oppress me. And, and that's not loving. Jesus wouldn't do this. Jesus would accept everything. You're like, I know. Promoting love where the individual is the highest good. Self-gain, self-justification, self-worth. It's all about the self. In fact, if we embrace this cultural way of love, it's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. It's childish. It's an immature type of love. There's some layers of truth because those are real needs, but it's childish like, like, think about this. Have you ever justified a behavior just because we're in the church context that is not biblically compliant or in alignment with the Bible, and you justified your behavior with love? I am living with my boyfriend or my girlfriend because I love them. Even though we know 
It's not right. But we can't allow love to be dictated by some other authority because love has to be the authority. And so therefore, because I love this or that, I'm going to justify my behaviors. Like, this is a challenge that we have to have. This is what happens when love is all about us, when it's all about us completing ourselves in the pursuit of it. Have you ever gotten unjustly mad or upset or irritated with other people because if they really loved you, they would accept all of your decisions and they would just chill out. Stop telling me that this and that is wrong. Just let me be. After all, if it's not harming anyone, why is it bad? Have you ever used the phrase, if you loved me, you would fill in the blank? And you do that in order to get what you want. I've never done that. (laughs) My wife can testify to it. Hi, my name is Brandon and I am a liar. (laughs) Like, you complete me. You see, culture gives us this definition of love and it's never going to complete you. It's just going to empty you, okay? I'm, I'm getting some feedback up here. Um, the brutal reality is just simply that because only God can complete you, right? Like only the love of God can complete you. There's the cultural way of love or there's the divine way of love. One empties and one absolutely fulfills. But Brandon, why do you got to bring God into this conversation? I mean, after all, have you ever heard anybody say this? I just love love. Like, you ever, like, have you ever said that? Like, I just love love. And I'm like, okay, I get what you're saying. What you're really saying is that you love your version of love because if you don't accept God, you really don't love love. Right? You can't love love and reject God at the same time. It's incompatible because God is love. He's the source of love. It's through his love we get to understand what love is. And it's through experiencing his love that actually frees us to love other people. So if you want to love love, you've got to love God. And God is love. Like, the Bible doesn't give us any definitions of love. God is love is the closest definition we have. And I think the Bible does that on purpose to protect us from creating a Wikipedia type of definition that will slowly slip into idolatry. The fact that the Bible only gives us God is love as the best definition for love is all sufficient. It's all needed. All you need to do is to look to the scriptures and see the heart of God on display. You want to know what God is like? You look at Jesus. You want to know what love is like? Look at how he acted. Look at what he taught. Look who the people he pursued. That's why I love. It doesn't give us a definition. That's why I love. Like, that's why I appreciate it doesn't give us a definition. But what it does do is gives us stories and it gives us like principles and actions to help us know what love does and what love doesn't do. Okay, And so last week, we started to dig into this, like when Pastor BJ started talking down 1 Corinthians 13, 4, love is patient, love is kind. And he had to throw me under the bus and say, he gave me the hard one. I'm like, nah, dude, I gave you the softball one. 
Because I got to tell you, you got to speak in the positive. I get to tell the church what love isn't. Love isn't envious. Verse 4. Love isn't boastful, or in other words, you can think self-righteous. Love isn't arrogant or conceited. Love isn't self-seeking, self-centered, self-gaining. Love isn't rude. Love isn't irritable or annoying or annoyed. Because we like to, like, BJ even brought stuff, and I was like, this is so good. He says, like, we just, like, cover up the irritableness with the word annoyed. And I'm like, ah, I actually covered up with pet peeves. Huh? Why do you have pet peeves in the first place? Because you're irritated. <laughs> so, love is not these things. Paul wrote this to a church that was in conflict. This church loved Jesus. They were saved, right? There were still unbelievers in the church, but the majority of them were believers. And over time, they began to slip back into the cultural way of love. And they started to kind of deal with that, right? Like they started to boast in preachers and teachers like, hey, some of you say you follow Apollos, and some of you say you follow Peter, and you super Christians say you follow Jesus, right? It's just like Paul says here, love is not boastful. So why would you boast in teachers? He goes on, it's like, why do you boast about what you have? Didn't everything you have in Jesus been given to you by grace, which simply means undeserved? It's undeserved. So how can you boast? Why should you be rude? How could you be self-seeking when you don't deserve any of this? These are things that Paul is trying to, like, to highlight in his church. And it's like sandwiched between chapter 12 and 14, which talk about spiritual gifts. And he's like, listen, like, you're, you're highlighting these gifts. Like, man, you, you're like looking at these amazing communicators and even the people are using these gifts to like get people to look at them so they can make other people envious of their spirituality. And he's like, stop it. If it's not for the common good, if it's not building up in love, you're just, an annoying symbol. Like you could have the greatest prophecies. You could speak like angels. And if you don't have love, if love isn't motivating you, it's annoying. <laughs> so the question I, like, I want to ask you is, how does the outside world hear? What do they hear when you talk about Jesus? When you invite them to church, what do they hear? Now, granted, like, there's layers to this, but are they hearing a message of redeeming love? Like, come hear the good news that God loves you, and then you place your faith in him, he will forgive you and give you the ability to live a new life, a new creation, and he will never leave you? Or do, do they just hear moral conformity? You've got to be like me, you've got to be like this, and we Bible thump, and we put these expectations on them, or we use other platforms to communicate messages that really aren't so loving, but I've got to defend the truth. Like, what do they hear? Like, this, this is a serious heart check to the church. He's like, love endures all things. 
Love is eternal. At the end of chapter 13, he goes, three things remain, faith, hope, and love, but love is the greatest of these. Why? Because the love is the only thing that's going to be experienced for eternity. When we die on this earth, faith and hope aren't needed in heaven. What will you need to hope for? What will you need faith? Because now we see fully. So all we need is love. Love is significant. Love is actually the whole, if you were to summarize the Bible, it is love. Love. Oh, man, I did not want to preach this message. Because when you dig into this, he's like, okay, I don't want to be a hypocrite. Okay, God, show me my heart. And I already know, I already know I struggle with all of these. So this week, I was like, great. I am envious. I am coveting a whole slew of things. Am I boastful, self-righteous, trying to even maybe in the insecurity, a boomerang conversation? You know what that is? Like you start to talk to somebody and they start to communicate back and then you go, oh yeah, 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 and about me and da, da, da. my experience is this, is that. Like, yeah, you make it about you, arrogant, rude, irritable. I am irritable almost every day and I blame it on the why. It's not my fault. If people just knew how to drive better and if the city of Austin just dealt with their infrastructure issues, I'd, I would have peace. Like, like, right? Like we, we blame and project all these things. Like I'm telling you, I have such a horrible sin habit when I drive. Like when people annoy me in front of me, it's habitual, I, and I, I'm confessing this to you, not for you to use this over me. But if this happens to you when I drive past you, I'm so sorry. But I will pass the person, and, and, and I didn't know this until my wife and kids brought this up. They say, you give them the glare of death. And I'm like, I know, I want them to know that they're irritating. Like, did you not know you're going one mile too slow and I had to get around you? Like, I do that, I just give them this like, I'm like, oh my gosh. Love isn't envious. Why isn't love envious? It's the 10th commandment of the 10 commandments. You shall not covet your neighbor's house or your neighbor's wife. And then I love the all-inclusive statements or anything else. It's just like, why is coveting and envying not compatible with love, right? Like, like the, the word definition is earnestly desire. It's a neutral word. So envy can be really good. Like, it's really good to earnestly desire intimacy with your spouse. It's good to earnestly desire, like, the spiritual gifts, which is what he talks about in chapter 12, 14. It's really good to earnestly desire to be in the presence of God. Really, really good. But he's using this in a negative sense. This word is really like starting to meddle in your heart. So let's, let's go there because I want you to share in the conviction I had all week. What happens inside of you? Literally, like what happens inside of you when you begin to earnestly desire something that you don't have? What do you do? For me, it becomes a preoccupation of the mind. I start thinking about it. 
over and over, and then I try to figure out ways how I can get it. Then I think about areas where I can maybe compromise or change this, sacrifice this, all these types of things. I start to do that, and then when I realize it's not going to happen, guess what happens inside of me? I grow bitter. I grow resentful. No longer can I even rejoice or appreciate what the other people have because they're annoying me. I want what they have. God, why didn't you give me what they have? And this is not even an issue of discontentment, even though discontentment is very much part of it. It gets into the heart where it affects our heart, where scriptures say it causes bitter envy, bitterness, and resentment. Really, there becomes a sadness inside of us, an anxiousness in the heart that begins to like infiltrate our minds. Like, what are we really sad about? It grows to the point of the pain and angst. Like, we see this in Scripture, and it's not just over material things, but how many of you have ever grown envious or jealous of the wicked, of the evil? Psalm 73, just read the first 15 verses. Asaph, who's a major worship leader in Israel, he's reflecting on his heart, and he's confessing, essentially, I am envious of the wicked. Why does it look like those who do evil are getting everything they want? Why does it look like they get all the money, all the toys, nothing goes wrong, but here I am trying to love you, God, and all I get is bitterness. All I get is suffering. You ever been there? And then he says in verse 15, 16, he's like, then I remembered. I remembered the future. I remembered the direction. Psalm 37, verse 1 we're exhorted to don't be agitated by the evildoers. Don't envy those who do wrong. That can even speak to those who cheat on taxes, kind of skimp the lines, kind of manipulate sales in order to get some more money. Don't be envious of them. Genesis 4, Cain and Abel, the first siblings, Cain was envious of his brother Abel because God favored his offering more than that. And it grew over time to the point that Cain murdered his brother. David and Saul. Saul was the first king of Israel. Kind of a big deal. Saul comes around. He's a shepherd boy doing his little thing. He slays a giant because Saul was being a coward. And now they're singing these praises. Saul kills his thousands, but David is tens of thousands. And what happens to Saul? Envy and bitterness and covetousness consumed him, and he tried to kill David. One of the reasons why the Pharisees executed Jesus, Matthew 27, 18, they were envious of his ministry. Peter was jealous of John. Just look at John chapter 21. Envy and love do not go together because love seeks out the benefit. It seeks out the good. It seeks out the well-being of another so much so that you are willing to personally sacrifice whatever comfort or gain you have to see the other succeed. That's why envy and love aren't compatible. If you're envious, you will not sacrifice things personally to see them lifted up. So we got boasting and arrogance. It's the flip side of the same coin, whereas envy is like, I am angry that you have this and I can't rejoice with what you've got. Boasting is the reverse. Boasting is essentially me trying to cause you to be envious of me. 
It's like, look what I did. Look what I have. And arrogance is like, well, these are really self-defining. Arrogance is like ignoring the truth. Like I, there, there's, it is so incompatible for a follower of Jesus to be arrogant. It's so incompatible. Humble yourself. Be sober-minded. Think of what you were before. Right? Like, this is so difficult. The way of divine love is humility. It's receiving love. It's receiving grace. We boast because we want people to think differently about us. We want them to think the way we want them to think about us. And, and other, it's either influenced by pride or insecurity because we're afraid they won't see us a certain way or they won't love us just for who we are. So we need to inflate a certain behavior or a certain trait. Like, that's just wrong. That's just a life of fear, paranoia, pride, and insecurity, and a life of no rest. It leads to lying. It leads to manipulation. It's not just simply like, I'm the greatest basketball player ever. Like, it's not just that. It's self-righteousness. I define what is right and wrong. I define this and that. In fact, humility looks like Jesus. Philippians 2, he emptied himself all the way, taking on the form of a servant. He emptied himself, and he died on the cross for us. That's humility. Arrogance and boasting looks like Satan. Isaiah 14, you can look at that later. But we see this in the New Testament, actually, in James chapter 3. In James chapter 3, the brother or the stepbrother of Jesus starts laying this out. Verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. In other words, like dependence on Jesus, understanding who you are, all that you've got comes from him. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth, which is where arrogance comes in. No, 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 no. I, I, God's word says this, but ah. Like earlier in chapter one, James says like, humbly receive the implanted word in you that can save. Such wisdom, like I love that quotation, such wisdom where you boast and have envy does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and of the devil. It's not just a bad behavior. It's you're acting like Satan. Have a good day. I mean, this is, this is heavy, but it's so good for our hearts. And he continues, like, you can read this in chapter 4. It's like, man, what causes fights and quarrels among you? He's speaking to a church, right? Like, what causes fights and quarrels among you? It shouldn't be within the church. Don't they come from the desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it, so you kill and you covet, but you cannot have what you want. I don't think James is literally saying you murder people. I think he's referencing a little bit of the Matthew 5, like if you hate your brother or sister in your heart, you are as guilty as killing them. 
You quarrel and fight. You don't have because you do not ask God and so on and so forth. He's like, man, you adulterous people. Friendship with the world is hatred toward God. Love doesn't envy. Love isn't boastful. Love isn't arrogant. All of the things that we thought would be great to have on a resume, you can just read Philippians chapter 3. Paul's like, hey, if I had any reason to boast, I would boast about this. And in fact, my resume is better than your resume. Just saying. I was this and this and this and this and this. Now, because of Jesus, it's all garbage. And just for flavor, that word rubbish, I'm, I'm going to go there because you need to hear the severity of that word. In the Greek, it's skubalon, which means shit. Like Paul was trying to be dramatic for a reason. Everything that I used to boast about, I now consider scubalon for the sake of knowing Christ. Powerful stuff. Love isn't rude. That's pretty self-explanatory. Part of the things that go with rudeness is gossip. It's rude to gossip because you're causing other people to sin. It's rude to slander in the face of an individual or even behind their back, which is another form of gossip. Love doesn't scream at people. It doesn't try to motivate people by constantly pointing out all of their faults to kind of beleaguer them, like kind of keep being heavy-handed on them, saying, just do this, just do this, just do this, just do this. There's a patience and a kindness to it because if we continue to do that and if they don't conform to that ask, we will grow resentful. Colossians 4, 6 says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. Parenting is hard. It is so hard, especially when kids act childish. Like, isn't it the thing as an adult, as a parent, you're like, why are they doing this? Oh yeah, they're a kid. Right? Like, you forget to do that, and it's so frustrating and it, their logic is so irrational and you, it just grows on you when you tell them to do something once, they don't do it. You tell them to do it twice, they don't do it. And then in your exasperation, you say, I'm going to take the whole world away from you if you don't do it. And then they still do it. And then you become the child and you throw a fit. <laughs> Love isn't rude. Return a blessing for a curse. Love your enemy. Pray for your enemy. Love isn't self-centered. It isn't about you because love is about prioritization. Love prioritizes the divine way of love always prioritizes the other above self. Whereas the cultural way of love will always prioritize self. Always. Yeah, we are to love ourselves 100%. But it's not the way that we think it is because we need to find our value, our identity, our security, our rest in the love of God where we are now freed up to not have to pursue it or try to get it or to try to make other people the Savior and Messiah and God and all those types of things because he loves me and I know this and I am secure in this. John 13, when Jesus washed the disciples' feet, verses 3 and 4 of John 13 are so profound. 
We are told immediately that he wanted to show his disciples his love, so he loved them to the end. And it says that he knew that the Father gave him all things, right? Like he knew who he was in relationship with the Father. He knew what he had, so he was then able to take the form of a slave and to wash his disciples' feet, who in a 24-hour span, all but one will leave him. He knew who he was, so he didn't feel like he had to get affirmation, get approval, get this or that from other people. So he was freed to serve, freed to humble himself, and freed to express the love of God. Powerful. One way to know if you are struggling with being self-centered when it comes to love, and we're going to talk about this next week, is in forgiveness. Are there people in your life, sorry, I'm going there. Are there people in your life right now that you can't forgive? Why? Please hear, I'm not downplaying the severity of the pain caused to you from that circumstance or individual. Definitely not. But why can't you forgive them? 99% of the time, it's usually this response, because they owe me. I will forgive if or when they. We keep them in debt. Romans 13, 9, I think it's 9, tells us that the only debt that we should have is the debt to love not the debt of an offense. You see, when you struggle to forgive someone, you're just thinking about yourself. You're protecting yourself. You're wanting things to be right with you and yourself. But when we go through the Lord's Prayer, forgive others as you have been forgiven. Love isn't irritable quick-tempered, doesn't easily get annoyed and removes their pet peeves, the BJZ version. So I want to wrap up with this because when you read this list, I'm willing to bet that some of you are feeling convicted. Some of you may be feeling super guilty. Some of you may be thinking, man, I know I could do better. I can love better. Or feeling like, almost like hopeless because you're like, I don't know how to do this. I don't know if it's even possible. And you're starting to wrestle with these things. And, and this, like, and I was thinking about this, like, I don't want to give you all a list of things to do because that will just kind of slip into this old pattern. Because what I realized following Jesus is that I can only love others to the degree that I know and personally experience the love of God. We love because he first loved. That's not just a theological fact. You have to experience it. And so walking out of here and just hearing the application, it's like, well, you just got to tell yourself that God loves you. Even if you don't feel it or believe it, you just, you just tell yourself, God loves me, God loves me, God loves me, even if you don't feel it. God loves me. 
which is true. He does love you, doesn't change. But the sentiment on it is, is sort of like this. Like imagine telling your spouse after 20 years of marriage, who for maybe the last five years hasn't been feeling the affection of her husband and comes to talk to you about this. And the advice she gets is to hear, just tell yourself your husband loves you. He told you at the altar, so just remind yourself of that. Wives, is that a great strategy? Thank you. Yeah, yeah, like, because some husbands are like, that's amazing. You know? No. Love, is, it, it, love carries a responsibility to the other person for them to feel and know that you love them. There's a responsibility. So it's, it, it's okay. In fact, it's biblical to ask God to know and to feel his affections for you. Yeah, I went there, emotions, feelings, yes. There's so many prayers in the Bible. Like, just read the Psalms. You see this, Psalm 27. One thing I ask, one thing I seek is to dwell, to gaze at your beauty. That's love language. Like, he's asking God, like, I, I want to, I want, to, I want to gaze upon your beauty because he knows that when he's dazzled or moved by the beauty of God, there's this sense of affection that he feels by God. Like, it is so important. Like, do you believe God loves you? I used to work with at-risk youth. And, and when I would ask them about, like, working through parental issues, like, you know... Do you know that your mom and dad love you? And the kid would typically go, yeah, I know they love me. And I would always feel this tension. I'm like, why doesn't that make you joyful? And like in my experience in pastoring over the last 20 years, that's the same experience I have with a lot of believers. Do you know God loves you? Yeah, I know God loves me. Do you know how awesome that is? We, we, don't, we, don't, we don't receive that because we're always like, I could always do better. I could always pray more. I could always read my Bible more. I could always go to church more. I could always love better. Yeah, that's why Jesus came for you. He loves you and he saved you regardless of your more. You're, you're never... You can't earn it. You, you, it's not contingent upon your behavior. It's just simply not. And every time, I know there's this experience, every time we try to draw near to God, like we, we, there, Satan is called the accuser. And I was listening to a sermon on the drive home from Oklahoma City, and this just hit me. The accuser, Revelation 12, 10, accuses the brother day and night. That's like, he's constantly doing it over and over and over and over and over. And the pastor was saying, it's like, when do you oftentimes hear the accusations the most? And when he, when I, when he said what he was, what I'm going to share with you, I was like, oh my gosh, it is so true. It's like the accusations come on the most, the strongest, the loudest, when you are trying to draw near to God. And it usually comes in the form of like this. You don't deserve to be here. You sinned. Don't you see what you did? You, you don't. What makes you think that God will hear your prayers? What makes you think that 
you'll get something from this. Right? You start to feel those subtle little lies and accusations, and he like, covers up his voice so well that he convinces us that it's actually the voice of God. That we begin to think that this is what God thinks of me and what God requires of me. And then the next thing you know, you're just drifting away. Because that's too hard. You feel too much guilt and shame coming to the Lord. But God wants you to know how much he loves you. John, this is what I'm going to land on. John 15, verse 9. John 15, verse 9. As the Father has loved me, Ask yourself and answer this question, how has the Father loved Jesus? As the Father has loved me, so I love you. As the Father has loved me, that's how I love you. I can't help but think of the baptism when the Father just this is my son. I am well pleased with him. God is saying that to you right now. You got to ask yourself why you can't receive that. Yeah, discipline for sure. But his, his love isn't contingent upon your perfection, your morality, your motivations, like, could you ever do any of these love things with a pure heart? You, you can't love with 100% pure intention. You, you just can't. You're always going to have mixed motives because we're sinful. So this is like, you read this passage and you go, oh my gosh, how do I do this? You got to pause and go, this is how he is towards me. And gaze upon his beauty. Ask and hear, believe. Jesus is your advocate. He's your defense lawyer. When the accuser is pointing out all of the issues in your life as to why you can't be near God, you call upon Jesus and he's our advocate. And what is seen by the judge is the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. It's beautiful. So how I want to end this is not go, hey, guys, love better this week. Even though that's important, you choose to do that. But more than anything, I want you to understand when Paul says the love of Christ compels me, it flows out of that. That's why we say we want to be a church that's simply about Jesus and why one of our values is to strive to be captivated by Jesus because that's how believers are known is by our love so I'm going to pray and um, I asked the worship team to play this one song um, run to the father we, we sang it a few times and I just want to encourage you to use this moment either you sing along with or you just pray spend some time with the Lord and ask the Holy Spirit to show you maybe the areas in your life that are causing you from not receiving the love of God. And if there's anybody in this room, like, who maybe never heard or understood or is feeling the stirring in their heart to come to Jesus, to place their faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior, 
to go, listen, Jesus loves me. He died for me. He forgave me. And when I put my trust in Jesus, not only am I forgiven, but he also gives me the ability to live his way of life as a new creation. And he'll never leave you. You see, my fear, and I'm telling you, like, one of my greatest fears growing up was that when people knew me, they would leave me. I was told as a kid that from multiple people, different angles, that you're not going to amount to much. I wish you were more like so-and-so. I was called a son of Satan. So I came to believe that if people really knew me, because obviously they're seeing something that has to be true. So if they really knew me, they would leave me. So I grew fearful of love because I thought I had to control things and try then to be good enough. And then I would finally be good enough. But then when I heard about the good news of Jesus, that not only did he die for me, not only does he give me the spirit and the ability to become a new believer, he's also promised me that he will never leave me no matter what. Nothing could ever separate me from the love of Christ. That can be yours right now. In fact, it is yours. You have to receive it by faith. And if I'm just going to also spend some time just praying, like in asking us, like if there's something stirring in your heart where you need prayer, please come on up. I'll be up over here for prayer. And I'm sure some of the elders might be stirred to come on up <coughs> to, for prayer. But let's just ask the Lord to show us his affections for our heart. Lord, I thank you for this time. God, and in so many words, so many things, so many emotions, so many thoughts. Holy Spirit, would you make sense of it? I want to pray for anyone in this room who wants to trust in the love of God, who wants to be freed of the emptiness of their life, the emptiness of selfishness and this false love narrative. That they choose to trust you and to receive your grace. Lord, I pray for them that you would protect their hearts from the enemy who wants to steal these words. Maybe it's fear of becoming a Christian or, or still thinking that you have to be good enough and you have to tip the scales in the good behavior column. And if that's you this morning and you want to put your trust in the Jesus, I just want to encourage you, come on up and receive prayer. But if there's anyone else here, Lord, I just ask that you would show them how much you love them. We, we are okay with asking because the Bible gives us that plea in Ephesians 3 that we are going to appeal to the Father on our knees, asking the Holy Spirit to reveal to us the love of Christ so that we can be rooted and established in love as a community. So Lord, would you just show us, pour out, help us to understand, not just intellectually, but emotionally, your affections for us, how you see us. Lord, help us to understand even just a little bit of that verse where he says, as the Father has loved you, you've loved us. Like, what, what does that mean? 
And how do we live in that? So God, we need you for that. And we, we know it's true and we confess it's true, but God, sometimes our experiences and our choices block it. So Holy Spirit, just do your work in our hearts now. In Christ's name.